millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Trustmark, featuring My Trustmark online and mobile banking. Monitor accounts and information, transfer funds, create special alerts and reminders. Details at Trustmark.com. Member FDIC. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, May 15th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, state leaders hope Mississippi will receive disaster recovery assistance. We'll hear what volunteer organizations say they need most. So we got uh, FEMA in to do joint damage assessments with us because once we think we've made the thresh- met the threshold, FEMA has to come in and do a verification. Advocates for Mississippi children with mental health needs are seeking creative partnerships as funding is threatened. And after Everyday Tech, find out what you can do to help your children avoid summer learning loss. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippians in storm-ravaged counties are one step closer to receiving federal aid. Governor Phil Bryant has requested assistance for nine counties affected by the severe weather, tornadoes, and flooding that hit Mississippi April 30th. Local governments and nonprofit organizations are working around the state. Bruce Poss is from Samaritan's Purse, a Christian disaster relief organization. The group is working in the city of Durant, where a tornado killed one person and damaged nearly 300 homes. He tells MPB's Mark Rigsby more manpower is needed. We have 32 volunteers that are out doing tarping, chainsaw work, and pulling debris to the curb, helping people clean up their yards. And this is something that you see on a regular basis with the kind of work that Samaritan's Purse does. Is that right? Oh, yes. We, Samaritan's Purse it responds all over the U.S. Last year, we deployed 14,000 volunteers to disasters across the U.S. And so it's an ongoing ministry that Samaritan's Purse does. Um, you know, tornadoes do a lot of uh, tree work. Uh, you know, it's a lot of tree work there and does a lot of the um, damage to the roofs. And so people have to get back in their houses. We know there's some some weather coming in this weekend and so we're really trying to focus on tarping those houses to keep further damage from happening and as we are talking right now there's a very large tree behind this home where your volunteers are trying to to bring it down it looks like it's 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 enormous but it's been here for nearly two weeks yes it's uh it's a lot of lot of need here uh i told someone yesterday um our greatest need is not finances or supplies but people uh, and this whole community needs people. So we need folks to come in and partner with us. Uh, if uh, they don't want to work with our organization, there are other organizations, or they can just come in and, and help pull limbs out of, of yards. There's a lot of need. There's more work than there are volunteers, what the volunteers can do right now. Do you think that this is just a forgotten disaster at the moment? Media hinders disaster response. At the same time, the tornadoes were hitting here. 
uh, Canton, Texas, got hit. And a lot of the, especially the national media, uh, focused on Canton. And so the other areas that happened really in that same weekend have been, you know, neglected a little bit. What's the worst damage you've seen in Durant so far? Well, you can't really see a distinct tornado path as you sometimes see in tornadoes. Uh, There are multiple areas of destruction from uh, south of here in in Pickens and uh, Goodman and all the way up into this area. Certainly in Mississippi, this was the most uh, damaged area. There's, There's houses that rooms are taken off the front of it from the trees that that came down the downtown area has damage um it's it's just sad to see thank you so much for being on mississippi edition we do appreciate your time thanks mark lee smithson is director of the mississippi emergency management agency he says the funding is imperative well quite frankly the reason why there's still so much debris uh, especially in durant is because neither the city nor the county uh, have the assets Uh, or the money, quite frankly, to be able to haul that debris off. In most cases, um, when public assistance is declared, it's a reimbursable uh, type uh, situation to the counties where the county can go in, pay to haul off the debris, pay to fix the roads, pay to get the the power lines restrung. But in this case, because Holmes County um, is more than double the national average in the poverty level, they just do not have uh, the, the resources to haul the debris off. So uh, that's why it's so imperative to get the fe- federal disaster declaration um, to be able to get in so that that debris can be hauled off before it really starts presenting a health hazard. Public assistance is being requested for Adams, Calhoun, Carroll, Claiborne, Holmes, Jefferson, Montgomery, Webster, and Yazoo counties. In a statement, Governor Bryant has said this was truly a widespread severe weather event. Most of the survivors will need federal assistance to help them rebuild and recover. Coming up, parents and mental health care advocates collaborate to address the challenges in finding treatment for children. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Advocates for children's mental health services in Mississippi are meeting about ways to improve services and forge partnerships in the face of the state's budget crunch. The theme for the event focused on finding innovative ways to help children and families cope with challenges. The event comes as community-based mental health service providers prepare to adjust to the shrinking state budget. With future changes unknown, some advocates are focused on highlighting the needs a changing system will need to address. Lisa Fuller is the mother of two girls, ages 17 and 14. She tells us her experience navigating the system to find treatment solutions for her children. I have two children, um, one on the autism spectrum. She has high-functioning Asperger's syndrome, and then another one that has ADHD and anxiety and depression. So I have personally been affected um, with two children with different diagnoses. 
What has it been like for you in terms of getting services? Well, my um, health care provider, um, her medical doctor, was very helpful in giving me some names early on. Um, and then I did a lot of research on my own. Uh, once I found a great behavioral therapist, an ABA-certified therapist, she was helpful in guiding me to some of the great occupational therapists in our community as well as speech therapists. Some of these individuals specialize in certain areas, so it was helpful me to me to not just go to a general speech therapist, but somebody that has had a lot of experience dealing with someone on the spectrum. Give us an idea of some of the challenges that your children face with these diagnoses. First, starting with my child that has Asperger's, acceptance is huge. I mean, these children are different um, socially. They're not as intuitive as uh, neurotypical children. They um, oftentimes experience bullying in schools. Socially, they're a bit awkward. And so that has been hard for her to be accepted. I will say that we had experienced more of that in in lower elementary. But um, since she has been back home from the school that she went to in Utah and then the Asperger school that we went to here through Canopy, that um, her transition into public school for middle and high school has been wonderful. And we have not experienced as much of that. And the younger one is 14, soon to be 15. She has an ADHD diagnosis as well as anxiety and depression. And um, early on was diagnosed with dyslexia. So I think that some lack of self-confidence from an academic perspective and then certainly with all the social media that we have today, that has been has had a huge impact on her, um, her ability to handle that in a, in a positive manner. What has it been for you as a parent? Well, it has been a challenge. I think early on especially it was um, I often felt a bit isolated um, from friends. I mean, we, you know, you, you go through that phase where your child has explosive outbursts and, and tantrums and anger issues, and folks quit inviting you to birthday parties. They quit inviting you over for dinner on the weekends. It, so it was a bit isolating early on. Then, after she um, certainly had interven- a great deal of intervention and overcame that and had her emotional regulation, we saw that somewhat change. I will say that it was overwhelming for me as a parent to navigate the system. I did it one step at a time. What is your message to people attending this event? It's two two things. Number one, my goal and my passion going forward is that all families in our state and in our country have access to the same quality treatment programs that my children have experienced. There's a great deal of cost involved in these type of programs. Number two, to encourage all educators and healthcare providers to look at every single child as an individual. Consider where they've come and what they have done um, so that when we're working and we're coming and asking for help within the system, to look at them specifically before you close that door and say, no, we can't do that, or you don't qualify for this, or I'm sorry, you can't go to that school. You have to do this first and fail at this before you can go to plan B. What about so many families that don't have type of resource to be able to incur some of these costs, help pay for some of the necessities that children need? Overwhelmingly, I'm upset by it. This is absolutely not right. We need a mental health reform for our country, not just in Mississippi. Everyone should have access to these good programs, these wonderful treatment centers that my children have had access to. No child should be turned away. Um, There needs to be something in place whereby the costs are offset, whether it's by the state government, the federal government. I don't know all the answers, but I know that we need to do something. Everybody should have access. Thank you so much for speaking with us. You're welcome. Thank you. 
Tracy Malone is Deputy Commissioner for Child Welfare with Mississippi Department of Child Protection Services. She talks about what they've learned. I think that what we really have learned is the trauma that ensues when children are removed from their families. What we are learning and know today with brain development, with medical science, as well as with mental health information, is that the trauma created when children are removed from their families is so very significant that we have to figure out better ways to keep children safe in their own homes, provide the services within communities and within schools, and uh, make sure that children are safe with their own families when we can. That's an issue the uh, Department of Mental Health has been taxed with dealing with, and their funding um, has been cut due to state revenue constraints. What does that mean for helping our children? I think it just means we have to continue the conversation on how do we all come together to make sure that we're maximizing whatever services there are and that children actually and families are actually receiving what's needed and that we're not duplicating anywhere and that we really are taking a team approach with everybody available. As agencies that are responsible for the health and welfare of children throughout the state of Mississippi, we all are coming together to try to figure out how to solve this problem and that none of us believe that we're the only answer. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Canopy Children's Solutions hosted the fourth annual Children's Mental Health Summit last Friday in Jackson. Coming up, hear ways students can avoid the summer slide. And it's not the one at the playground. That's after Everyday Tech. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. I'm Sherita Brent in studio with Wills Couture and Jeremy Thompson. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about online and Internet privacy. Uh, who's watching what you're doing while surfing on the Internet? Wilts and Jeremy, good morning. Good, good morning. morning. So is there a such thing as Internet privacy? I mean, because pretty much everything is public. There's a conception of privacy, but anything that you put out there on the Internet, you can expect to see it from some other source. And, and a lot of people, you know, they volunteer their information like, you know, your your spouse's name on Facebook or, or even your maiden name on Facebook, which is, if you remember, one of those things that your card companies ask you for whenever you sign up for a credit card. They want your maiden name. And that information is out there publicly for most women. And something that I had brought up on my Facebook not too long ago and all these people who are answering all of these, let's get to know our friends. Well, if you really look at a lot of those get to know our friends questions, a lot of those questions coincide with security questions. And that's how a lot of these people are getting compromised because uh, people are getting their information and they're they're willingly putting it out there. There was a point on Facebook when you could put your email address out there. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting my Facebook account hacked um, because my email address was out there and apparently they got to my personal information through my email address and someone had created another Facebook account with my name and what? sent me a message. Oh, wow. So now um, that particular email address is not public, but I see so many things that are public. People's oh, yeah. numbers, their addresses, and like Wilt said, we are voluntarily offering this information. And I wonder why that is. It doesn't seem like there is even a public desire to even be private. It's just like, let's just share everything. It is kind of like a collective agreement, like, hey, let's just put it all out there. But another thing is um, a lot of it comes like wolf in sheep's clothing, like those little games that you see on Facebook where it's like, oh, what kind of Harry Potter, uh, uh, what what house would you belong to? Or which of your friends would help you get away with a crime or, you know, whatever it is. There's a bunch of just goofy little generators out there. But every time you use one of those, you're potentially passing your information over to a third party. 
So I'm curious about this idea of location, because it seems there's always this question when you go to a website, especially from your phone, this particular site wants to know your location. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a setting on most phones where you can turn your location on or off. Is there some benefit to revealing your location when you're on these websites? Convenience. For me, a lot of those, unless it's my uh, Google Maps, I don't really like to have my location services on. You know, I told people many, many moons ago, the camera app on your phone has location built into it. And, and it's a really neat little function. You can open up your pictures and you can see where you were when you took them. Well, here's the downside of that. Somebody else can see where you were when you took them. If and you, do you really want people knowing? I mean, like, you know, with me, I have, you know, kids. I don't want people knowing where my kid's school is at. I don't want people knowing physically where we were at when we were on vacation and not near our home. I mean, it sounds almost, you know, I don't mean to make it sound tinfoil hat time here, but you really do have to think about what information you're putting out there. And location is a is a big one. And I've seen these horror stories out there, ladies who have been through stalking problems. If somebody can get that information of where is your location, where are you commonly at, and at what time are you there, I mean, it really could cause some problems. And let's touch on how they do that. So let's say you have a website like Facebook. If you put a picture on Facebook, it strips this information from the picture. But if you have a website and you put it on there, no information has been stripped from the image, and they can get the image on their computer, and they can they can dig through the code in it and tell you exactly where that picture was taken in geographic coordinates. Last question is about cookies. So, for instance, I was looking for some furniture yesterday, Mm -hmm. and now all I see are furniture ads on everything I'm on. So I'm like, who's watching me? You know, because it seems like every time you look for something that you may be shopping for, then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden you are just overwhelmed with ads. Is that just a setting on the computer that you can turn off? Sort of. So we all sort of have uh, a unique ID that is sort of like our social security number, except it's used to profile us for ads. That number just has more information added to it every time you go to a website because they can track you. They can track you based on a lot of things. They can even use your battery life on your phone to find out unique individual users on a website. So they can track wow. you from site to site by tracking your battery life. Wow. Well, we will talk a little bit more about online surfing and privacy on Everyday Tech, the show. And you can always send us an email to everydaytech at mpbonline.org before or during the show. For Wilts Latrier and Jeremy Thompson, I'm Sharita Brent. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. Thanks for listening. Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. As Mississippi students enter summer break, many will forget some of what they've learned over the school year. This learning loss is commonly called the summer slide. It affects students of all grade levels. Suzanne Riles is the principal of Bramlett Elementary School in Oxford. She says the summer slide can cause teachers to spend weeks at the start of the school year reviewing information taught during the previous school year. Nathan Oakley is the executive director of elementary education and reading with the Mississippi Department of Education. He tells MPB's Alexis Ware parents play an important role in preventing the summer slide. Summer learning loss is something that we see uh, within students uh, each year uh, when they when they exit school in the spring and they they are not involved at all, uh, engaged at all during the summer in any kind of academic activity. Uh, we often will see students who regress uh, somewhat during the summer months before they return to school in August. What is the reason that students experience such a drastic academic loss? 
it varies. There are some students who remain engaged during the summer and continue to learn during the summer. There are others who, who may not have much activity or engagement during the summer, and that, that leads typically to the loss that we see. There's a number of ways to kind of combat that. And there's a lot of ways that can be addressed within the home. Uh, parents are our children's first teachers. Students spend uh, more time at home uh, with parents and with family members than they do at school. And so there's great opportunities for parents to support continued learning uh, throughout the year and uh, in the summer as well. Are certain students more at risk for this, say maybe if their parents are working over the summer or something like that? Certainly engagement at home plays a role in that summer learning loss. Uh, there are students who are with family members during the summer or uh, in summer programs who have opportunities to continue to learn. Uh, but there are instances where, where maybe um, there are students who are a little older, their mom or dad may not be at home, and they're not as engaged, not as involved or uh, plugged in with summer programs or activities during the summer months. What about summer reading? Does that kind of help the situation at all? So I think there's lots of ways that districts are trying to uh, address summer learning loss. A number of districts will provide uh, students with maybe a summer reading list uh, where students might read some books over the summer and come back with a presentation in the fall uh, early on in the school year where maybe everybody in the school or the district is reading a similar book. Uh, So they've got kind of a a community focus there. Some districts run summer reading programs or other kinds of uh, summer enrichment programs for students uh, in their schools or in their communities. And then there are oftentimes uh, library programs, public libraries that are running summer activities uh, where students can stay engaged through the summer and they can can go in for, for book clubs or for summer reading clubs or other kinds of activities. Those don't necessarily have to be driven by the local school districts. There are also uh, great opportunities for parents to foster that same kind of uh, love for learning and desire to continue learning in the summer through, through you know, family trips to the library or family trips to uh, museums. There's a number of museums here in the Jackson area and other um, family outings that can be educational in nature. They can support reading and mathematics and other content areas, but can make it, uh, make it you know, educational and, and fun and engaging all at the same time. How does this then affect the way that the first few weeks of learning is, and how does that impact the teachers? So there are some instances, certainly, where you know a teacher might have to go back and revisit um, some material that needs to be addressed with students um, prior to moving forward. Uh, that will depend on you know, the, the nature of the content of the course. It will depend on the, the students in that class. Would having to relearn the material put some students behind academically? If, if you're having to go back and revisit um, prior material, it's taking away from your instructional time and the course that you're teaching. That would vary, again, from place to place, but certainly it would, it would take away from the time. That would be the case regardless of whether it was from a, from a student who maybe had the content um, down in the spring, didn't use it for some period of time. You know, you don't, one of those situations where you don't use it, you lose it, or whether from a student who um, passed the previous course and just struggled with some of the content and is still not as far along toward mastery as some of the classmates. And is this a problem that's seen across the board in schools from elementary up until the high school years? John, I don't think it's necessarily isolated to any grade band. What are some things that parents can do to help their children over the course of the summer with this issue? The Department of Education over the last year or so has developed a number of resources to support parents. We have a parent read-at-home guide, read-at-home plan that's available on the department website that helps um, parents, particularly with grades K through 3 reading, 
activities uh, with their students. And then we also have a set of family guides to student success that address specific activities that parents can work on at home with their children across uh, grades pre-K through eighth grade for math and, and reading and other content areas. The family success guides are available both in English and in Spanish, and they are available on the department website. Nathan Oakley is the executive director of elementary education and reading with the Mississippi Department of Education. Thank you for speaking today. Sure. The National Summer Learning Association says because of this, summer learning loss contributes to the long-standing achievement gap between low-income and higher-income students. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9, it's Deep South Dining. Then at 10, it's Now You're Talking. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB public media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next edition of Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Trustmark, featuring Trustmark Deposit Express, ATMs for business and personal banking. No deposit slips, no envelopes, no waiting. Most deposits made by 9 p.m. weekdays are credited that day.